Well, Happy New Year, everyone. It's amazing the way the year works, isn't it? I mean, we, we hit these points in the year where we're just ready for something else. I'm on. And uh, I don't know about you, I get to about April and I'm ready for some sun. I've had enough of the damp British winter and I'm ready to feel the sun by that point. And then when I get to, to the end of summer, it just feels right to celebrate. We always, we, last couple of years, we've had a Cayley in here just to celebrate everything that God's done. Because our church kind of operates on an academic year, and we start the next year, and it just seems the right time to celebrate. And then Christmas comes around, and it seems the right time to gather with family um, and to be a bit generous and to celebrate the fact that God wants to come and, and be involved with us. He, wants, he doesn't want to stay aloof in heaven, but instead he wants to be Emmanuel, God with us. And it's great to slow down and to turn and to face God and to face each other. And then we hit January, the beginning of the new year. And for many of us, it just seems like a time to, to, to look forward and to set out on a new journey. You know, to reflect a little bit about what went wrong last year. Um, what we didn't get so right, and then also what we want to change, what we're hungry for in the year ahead. And so in this church, it's, it's been a bit of a tradition to, on, on the first Sunday of the year, to set out in a positive new way. And often we've taken a verse for the year. We've asked God to give us one verse that somehow encapsulates his heart for what this next year is going to be about. It helps to set our focus and it helps us to, to tune in with what God wants to do. I also think it's a really good time to stand back and remember the big picture of what God is doing right across the earth and what he's using his church for. And it's also a good time to reflect a little bit about what God said last year and whether we stepped in line with that as well. So before we launch into 2016, let's just remind ourselves of what, what it's really all about. What is the burning thing on God's heart? And when you step back far enough, you can see that God wants to save the whole earth. God wants to minister his salvation and his freedom to the whole earth, every single bit of it, and he wants to do it through us. I find that remarkable. He wants, us to, he wants to use us to redeem every area of life and culture. He wants to save every human being, every single one of them on the planet, regardless of who they are or where they've come from or what they've done. It doesn't matter. God wants every single one of them. And he wants to work with us to transform everything into the likeness and the beauty of heaven, as we've seen so beautifully displayed in the lifestyle of Jesus. He wants to bring everything into relationship with himself. And he wants to set the world free and to clean everything and to bestow honour and favour and glory on everything that he's made. And he wants to use us to do that. He wants to involve everything in his purposes. It's a glorious vision. Now God has not given up on the vision of saving everything of touching everything, of redeeming everything, of bringing everything, absolutely everything you can think of, into relationship with himself. And it's, it's a vision that is, is bought and paid for already by the blood of Jesus. And it's a vision that he's committed to resourcing every day of our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
All the resources are there to do it. And he wants to do it through the church. You and me. Which I still think is quite funny. (laughs) He wants to use us. So that's what we're called to do, to save the world. That's our job description. You okay with that? Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humour. But he is quite clear about this. It's as if God says, I'm going to rescue the world, and just for fun, I'm going to start with you, Pam. With you, John. With you, Rose. You know? Wouldn't that be hilarious? The devil is not going to see that coming. He's going to use us. It's a wonderful thing. And God, in his unique kind of wisdom, says, I'm going to touch every area of life and culture of totness, and I'm going to use the Christians to do it. You know, those, those people that are really good at coffee mornings. Um, most of us in this town are old. You know, most of the Christians in this town are quite old. And we, we all worship in different buildings around town in our own unique, funny little ways. And we bring our worship to God and we're all different. You know, God wants to use those ones that solemnly walk up the street on Good Friday. We all just about make it to the top of the hill. Those are the ones that God wants to use to establish his kingdom. He loves us and he doesn't want to look for a plan B. He wants to use every single one of us. And it's because of the way he works that the the weaker we are, the more suited we are for the job in his eyes. And I find that remarkable too. He loves to use the weak things and the insignificant things of this world. And so many of us consider ourselves well-placed for the work. But we are all devastatingly effective for his purposes because the philosophy of the kingdom and how the kingdom expands is so different from the kingdom of the world. You know, if you want to get ahead in the world, if you're going to succeed and have an impact in the world, you've got to be quite gifted and talented and motivated, right? You've seen The Apprentice? You've got to be focused. You've got to be motivated. You've got to have talents. You've got to be able to multitask. You've got to be able to lead. You've got to be pretty, pretty on it. So in the world, the, the equation is giftedness plus hard work equals success. It's not that way in the kingdom at all. You've just got to be available and responsive to him. Jesus said, what matters in the kingdom is abiding in Christ, allowing God to prune you, and then you'll be fruitful. Abiding in Jesus, allowing God to be at work in your life, changing things in your life, and the fruit will then come automatically through your life. What we're going for is fruitfulness. And that's why this church has embraced that strapline, going with the good news and growing followers of Jesus, reaching out into society alongside God, and then watching people grow and change and become fruitful as they begin a relationship with him. It's like successfully grafting branches into a vine and just watching them thrive and produce good things. We automatically start producing good things in our lives and find that we have a new capacity to bless others. That's how it works. So it really doesn't matter how clever we are. And it really doesn't matter how gifted we are or how high-born we are, whether you come from good stock or not. It's our willingness to stay close to him and to allow him to work in us. That's all that's ever needed. So it's impossible to be a not to be a fruitful person for God if we're doing that. It's a given. God will produce fruit in your life. Full stop. 
And that's how he does it. Now, this time last year, God set us the challenge of learning how to abide in him more effectively. Okay? Our verse for the year was, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And we felt God wanted to help us to be better at sensing and responding to his presence, both as individuals and as a church. And we wanted to learn to follow his presence. Almost like the Israelites followed the pillar of cloud and smoke through the desert. They had to become aware of what was going on with the cloud and then they had to be responsive and they had to follow and last year, there was a real call on this church to, to be people who, who learnt to be much more attentive to the movement of God and to be more, more responsive in, in our lives. And we recognise that you can't do that if you're moving at 100 miles an hour constantly in your life. If you're cramming your life with so much work and so much distraction, if you're moving so fast that every time you have a little bit of downtime, you're quickly trying to, to recalibrate with a bit of downtime, a bit of TV, a bit of distraction, a bit of escapism or a bit of sport or something just trying to trying to deal with the stress levels if your life is like that and you're moving at that kind of pace you can't be attentive to the still small voice of God saying this is the way so we encourage one another to slow down a bit and to rest and to pay attention again to the presence of God in a fresh way so maybe I should ask this morning did you do that how did you find doing that did you find it easy? I didn't. Maybe it was, for me it was a tall order, first year in a new job, you know, young family, all of that, and uh, there was a huge amount to attend to. Um, and so I, I, I found it very difficult, I had to diary it in, I had to be really, really intentional. But what I can say is that it was incredibly rewarding when I did. When I carved out quality time with the Lord, it changed everything. My perspective completely shifted, and I began to work from, from a different place. And so I wonder, how was it with you? How did you find that? And if you didn't find that you were able to do it much, you know, there's a fresh chance. This is a new year. You get to go again. It's important to remember to stop and to remember that God is God and we're not him. To remember that actually God is sovereign, God is powerful. God is interested. God is intimately involved. God can do things that we could never do. And by spending time with God, we start to come to terms with who he is and who we are. And we are just us in our own finite capacity. And we can begin to trust him again to do the things that only he can do. And we can begin to be at peace again with who we are. Uh, fully accepted people in the eyes of God, loved and celebrated by him, but just who we are. And then through him we get drawn into partnering with him to do things in this world. But we do it from a place of peace. We start working out of that place of acceptedness rather than working for acceptedness. We start working from a place of rest and peace rather than striving to get to a place where one day maybe we might just get to rest and have some peace, which never really comes. And it changes everything. Quality time with Jesus makes all the difference. So as a church, we benefited from some time together of learning how to respond to the presence of God. We've already mentioned Lee Abbey. That was the, that was the theme of Lee Abbey. That was what Robin Talbot was preaching about. Is how do we respond to the presence of God? How can we tune in in fresh ways? How can we learn in our own lives as individuals to be responsive when God is moving in a new way in our lives? 
And we took some time just to rest and to be together. And I think that that was an important time. Uh, and it wasn't just that time. It was also uh, summer camps, picnics, celebrations, unhurried worship times. We were very intentional over the year about slowing down and tuning into God. And I think it's really blessed our church. I believe that, I, that we've been growing nearer to God and drawing closer to him and to understanding him. We've also been drawing near, nearer to one another and drawing together as a family in God. And I'm so grateful to God for doing that for us. So these, these, these verses, these focuses are important. Now as we go forward, we're not going to throw that verse out. It's not like, well, you've had a year off, now chop, chop, back to work. You know, you've had a rest. It's not like that. This is really important to continue, uh, to set aside quality time with him, and to get better and better at responding to his presence. Is that right? You know, let's go on with all that he's taught us about his presence and his power and our need to tune into him. I want to know more about his direction. I want to know more about his wisdom. I want to know more about his provision and his glory, that if I don't do it, maybe God will do something else in my life. I want to spend more time with him this year than I did last year. You know, we want to, we want to grow in the things that God's teaching us and not just move, cast it aside and move on. And his promise to go with us still stands. Thank God. Because I don't want to go anywhere if he's not coming. So, so what about now? What about 2016? Well, this year, I really believe that God wants to deal with fear amongst us. To free us up. To be his good news people wherever we are. If God wants to liberate this whole area of Totnes into faith in Jesus he, and he wants us to do it we're going to have to deal with all fear and intimidation yeah. of our culture I don't need to tell you that our culture can feel sometimes very hostile to the Christian faith it can feel very intimidating sometimes what's the first emotion that arises in you if I were to say right now Okay, we're going to stop the service. We're all going to go out and we're just going to tell someone about Jesus. We're just going to strike up a conversation and we're going to tell them about Jesus. And we're going to go out as individuals. We're going to find someone. We're not coming back until we've led someone to the Lord. What's the first emotion that, that springs up? It does sound like a good idea. Let's, no. I've got a message to preach. We're not doing that. No. It's fear that often comes up. You know, you say, really? No way! You know, they, they probably won't want to know. They'll hate me. I might mess it up. I don't know where to start. It will be embarrassing. We sometimes have to battle through all sorts of arguments before we open the conversation. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever been asked to do that, just to go out and tell people about Jesus? It's an interesting exercise to do. It really is. I remember when, when I was on Radical Network in London, and this is something that they make you do, and you, you, do, you get used to it, you do it on a regular basis, and you kind of get, you get better at it. But I remember the first time, oh, there was about 10 of us in our year, and one of the tutors, the leaders of the course, just said, right, okay, this afternoon, we're just gonna go out and do some evangelism. However you want, you can knock on doors or just go up to people, however you wanna do it. You've got four hours, I'll see you back here in four hours, and just walked out. So there's, there's the ten of us looking at each other saying, okay, 
So it's about time we got into business, right? Okay, well, what are we gonna do? Let's pray, let's pray before we go out. Two hours later, we're still praying. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, would you save some people? Uh, until one of us said, so, um, do you think we should put our coats on now then and go out? It's amazing how long you can pray when the alternative is evangelism. It's amazing. Anyway, we, we decided, we went to sort of quite a nice bit near the prayer house where we were meeting. We went to a nice bit of the town, so we thought, you know, let's meet some nice people, let's start easy. And I remember going out thinking, I can't just knock on the door and then just say, hi. Do you know about Jesus? I, I just didn't know where to start. I thought, I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to not know what to say. Um, so I thought, I, all I need is a sales pitch. I need something to open the conversation. What can I say? What's, what's newsworthy? What's interesting? Um, and it just so happened that the church had kind of just been replanted after a really rough time. And they'd moved buildings. And they were in a new, new building. They were, they were worshipping in a school just down the road. Um, and so I thought, well, that's kind of new. It's kind of new, newsworthy. Uh, what I'll do is I'll knock on the door and say, Hi, my name's Aid. I live just down the road. I'm basically one of your neighbours. Um, and we, we've just started a new church. And I just wanted to come and let you know that we've started this new church. It's, it's meeting just in the school over there. Um, and we're just a bunch of Christians that, that love Jesus in the area. And we've just seen some the most wonderful things that Jesus is doing in this area. And we just wanted to tell you about some of those and ask you if there's anything we can do to, to bless you. I thought that if, you know, that'll sound like I know what I'm doing. You know, put people at their ease. So I knock on the first door, and this woman answers the door, and I said, hi, I'm Aid. I live just down the road, we're just out today, just, just chatting to people, just to let you know that we just planted a church in, in the school just down there, and I start, started, and she gets angrier and angrier and angrier, and I'm thinking this sales pitch isn't going well, until, so she says, so, you didn't feel like talking to the rest of us then? And I was like, so, sorry, I don't, I don't understand, and she said, we have been doing church in this area for the last 50 years. Our congregation is dwindling. She said, there's probably no hope. We might not even last the next five years because nobody is coming to help us and nobody is helping us with evangelism. <laughs> and here you are, you come in, just plant a church. <laughs> just plant a church. Have you spoken to any of the other Christians that have been praying here for 50 years? And I was just like, well, well, it's not really just planted. It's more like it's been going since like the 80s, but it's just sort of moved buildings. We've, we've kind of been here for ages and sort of start backtracking because I sort of half lied anyway. Um, <laughs> and I ended up having to apologise on her doorstep for, for what I'd said and say, look, you know, it's amazing. You know, you guys are praying. That's so good. You know, maybe we should meet up to find out what we could do together with evangelism. And I just really upset her and she almost slammed the door in my face. So I was like, right. First door under my belt. What's next? And I said, I just, I said, can we just go somewhere else? Because I don't really want to knock on the next door. You know, they'll just see us going from door to door. So there was only three of us because um, we went out in different teams. And so we went to this big block of flats, which was, you know, not far away. And so we went in there, and as courageous rednecks, we started praying again. I'm not knocking on any more doors quickly. Um, so we started praying, and then we just heard this huge thump against one of the doors. Like, someone had just thrown a massive heavy chair as hard as they could against one of the doors. And shouting, and shouting, and shouting. And there was just so much anger behind this door. And so, and it was a door with, with like bars, as, as prison bars, uh, on, on the front of the door, the door, and then a door beyond that, which had clearly been broken in a few times. This was a rough flat. 
And so I knocked on the door and I said, excuse me, are you all right? And he, and he just said, what the hell do you want? Well, he didn't say what the hell, but I'm in church, you know. He said, what do you want? What do you flipping want? And I said, I'm just... I said, this, I, I'm, I'm working with a church, I'm, I'm just up the road, but I happened to be passing your door, I heard a big thump, I, I just wanted to know, are you okay? And he said, no, not really. I said, what's going on? I said, you know, is there anything we can help you with? He said, maybe. And he opened the door and he let us in. And we went in and there's this guy who's about 19, who's just in his... Um, tracksuit bottoms, he was actually quite ripped, he was clearly a fighter of some kind, um, but the whole place stank of marijuana and, and all he had really was just a chair and an Xbox and a TV and a kettle and a microwave and hardly any food in the house or anything. And it's the first thing he said, oh look, let me make you a cup of tea and started sweeping up where he'd smashed things up because he'd, he'd just smashed up his glass coffee table. Uh, and threw thrown a chair again, his only one chair against the door and broken the leg off it. So he's like, oh, well, you, could, you guys could sit on that one because he had one leather armchair. So we kind of, three of us perched on the armchair and he just sort of, he said, let me make you a cup of tea. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, I haven't got any milk. And he said, I said, it's fine, you know, just have black tea together. And we just got to know this guy and this guy had been through the care system. He'd been, he'd come out way too early. He'd been out sort of fending for himself from about 15. He'd been given this flat. He had major anger problems and he had major uh, drug addiction because he'd been involved in that world for so long. But he'd just been left to language there and his girlfriend had just left him that morning and said, I can't cope with you anymore. All you do is smoke and play your computer and I don't want that. And he couldn't quite understand why she'd left him. But he was really angry. That was the one good thing that was going right in his life. And now she left him and he was back to square one. And we just built a relationship with this guy. And by the end of the day, he was giving his life to Jesus. And that was just from going out. And just being there and being available. And, you know, you have both ends of the spectrum of hostility from a Christian, never mind. Hostility uh, and receptiveness all at the same time. And we just felt so inadequate for the task. I remember another time when I was in Rwanda with Jonathan Conrad, who's coming to Totnes on the 2nd of July for our big uh, festival that we're doing. And uh, I remember going out with him, and I was just as terrified going out with him. You know, this is confession time. The pastor's scared of evangelism. Um, but I was going out with Jonathan Conrad, and, and he, he went to this rough part of the market um, where there's these guys that are just market workers hanging out, and they all look pretty mean. And I remember he, he just sort of stood up on a pallet and he just said, guys, guys, come here, come, come and gather around. I, I, want to, I want to talk to you. And a few of them kind of saunter up. And he just said, you know, I, I haven't got very long, so I really do just want to cut to the chase. He said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And, this, and John just preached to these guys about Jesus and about his love for them. And they just melted in front of him. They just melted. They just, it was amazing. By the end of it, there was a good 40 or 50 people gathered around John. All of them sort of being led through this sinner's prayer and then these local pastors taking their names. And I remember I was standing there with this other tall guy, slightly taller than me, a guy called Judah. And we'd sort of been um, John's backup. Um, and, uh, and, and John, just as he was kind of finished praying with he turned to us and says, right now, your turn, you go up that way. And so me and Judah sort of start walking off up the road. And 
I was like, right, our turn. And I remember sort of thinking, right, okay, who are we going to go to? All right, let's go speak to them. There's a, a few guys, teenage boys, just sitting down on the side of the road looking bored and nothing to do. And I just, I just went up to them. And I, I bumbled into it. I just sort of, because we had our translators with us. And I just bumbled saying who we were, that we were in town, that we, um, you know, we'd really like to, to just share with them something of the good news of Jesus and what God's doing um, in, in that area. And did they know of anything? of Jesus and could we share a little bit of something of the life of Jesus with them and I, I did my best I, I have to say I was not eloquent I was bumbling around I felt like an idiot I, I looked nervous I know I did because I flushed up and I, you know, I got scared um, but it turned out that most of these guys had some sort of Christian faith already uh, but when we ended up saying well is there anything we can pray for and one of them said I've got terrible headaches I always have terrible headaches can you pray for me and he had, I said, do you have it right now? And he just said, yeah. Um, and I said, right, well, let's, let's pray for that. And so we prayed for this guy. And, and he just started crying. He said, it's gone. He said, it's gone. I just feel God's presence. And he said, it's gone. And God healed that man of his headache. I don't know if it was for the rest of his life or if it was for that day, but it felt pretty definitive. And it felt like God was doing a special work in this man's life. And so I was so encouraged by that. And the next time Judah went in, he... He um, spoke to this bunch of kids, and we had, as soon as you start speaking to a bunch of kids, they all sort of gather around. We had about 50 kids in front of us. Uh, and, and before long, you know, he, he was leading them through a, a little prayer just to give their lives to Jesus, and loads of them put up their hands. They might have done that every Sunday for all I know, but it was still a really special moment. And again, a lot, a lot of them really moved. We've got to do something very deep in the heart of actually um, confirming to them that they were acceptable to him. It's, it's a funny thing about being terrified and being weak and trembling, but also being effective. It just seems to be God's way. So, one of the interesting things, when I came back from Rwanda, I was standing on the platform at Reading Station, having done this all week. And I remember just saying, okay God, how does it work here? It's all very well in Rwanda, where no one's ever going to see me again. How does it work here in this country? And I just thought, can I stand on that bench there on Reading Station and say, okay, guys, could you just gather around a minute? I've got a message for you. Um, I just want to share a little bit of something about what Jesus is doing in my life, what I've just seen the last week. And I had this thing in my mind, Why, what stops me from doing that? Actually, nothing stops me from doing that. But what I looked around and I saw just this defensiveness over people. People on their screens, people in their sharp suits, people looking, just stare at my face. There was just a vibe around people, which just wasn't there in Rwanda. People are just much more open, they're much more chatty on the street, they just, you know, say what you like, and it's, it's, it's different. And I just, I just felt this hostility <laughs> against the gospel. And I thought, if I stand up here and preach the gospel, it will be an offence to a lot of people here that I am, I am forcing them to listen to a message that it may even be bigoted in their view. And there was this fear that came over me that had lifted off while I was in Rwanda. It's like, I'm in a new territory here. This is completely different. It's scarier here than it is in Rwanda. Yeah. I can tell you that. Am I encouraging you yet? <laughs> yes. And it can be even harder on a local level when you know people and they know people who know you. And you think, well, <laughs> if I mess this up, this could be catastrophic. You know, I could be humiliated forever. 
because I'm not going to be able to get away from these people. I'm going to see them again at the school gates tomorrow or on the side of the swimming pool. This is my life now, but wherever you see people. And, and so many of our connections with people run on this polite, jolly, arm's length interactions. Not too deep, just friendly and warm, socially comfortable, hopefully giving the impression that we're okay and that we're okay with them. Keep it nice. That's how it is. That's how we tick along. Uh, and it's not always the most natural thing to f- throw in devotion to Jesus or sin or eternal consequences, is it? Stuff like that doesn't just easily enter the conversation without help from the Holy Spirit and a bit of confidence. So we can be lulled into this kind of cultural niceness that unconsciously suppresses anything to do with a confrontational gospel of Jesus Christ. Did anyone see that thing on the BBC, Reverse Missionaries? It was on a couple of years ago. Really, really interesting programme. It was where people from countries where British people... Or there was one Irish missionary, I think, had gone out in the 18th century, 18th and 19th centuries, to places in the world to proclaim Christ and had seen areas turn to Jesus. And these, they'd established churches in these countries. One of them was Jamaica, another one was a place in India. There's loads of different places. And then people from that culture, generations on, had said, well, I want to go back to the roots to find the, the church that this person came from who had the courage to get out of England and go, come to my country and just preach the gospel. I want to go back to where it all began. And so there was these fiery evangelists that came from these other countries that came back to these original places. And when they came back to these original churches, what they found was that it was completely shut down for the gospel. That nobody was particularly sharing their faith. They were imagining that when I get back to the root of all this, they're going to find these on-fire bunch of Christians that are sending missionaries out all over the world. But what they found was sleepy villages where people just did not have the courage to talk about Jesus at all. And so they would work along with the pastors and with other members of those congregations and they'd just go out into town and these people would start just going up to guys on skate parks and, and people in, you know, on the football pitch and just guys that are just hanging outside the pub just having a cigarette or whatever and just start chatting about Jesus. And you can see the British people just kind of saying, you can't do that. We, we don't do that here. That might work in India. That might work in Jamaica, but we don't do that. And they're really uncomfortable. And then by the end of the programme, you see these people having their eyes opened. Ten people came to faith this week. Ten people got saved. You know, these people were so affected because they just didn't worry about the Britishness. They just got in there, started sharing about Jesus. And you could see that there was people try and give a bit of a handover. They try and say, right now, you guys, it's your turn. I'm going back to Jamaica. How about you? And the pastors would have these wake-up calls of, I've just been sat in my church all the time. Well, people are out there not knowing about Jesus. This is a challenge to me. It's a challenge to all of us, because you don't have to be a pastor to shut up about Jesus. You know, it's difficult wherever we are. But actually, there is, there is a point that I believe that we can get to, and that I've been at, uh, to a greater extent at different times of my life, where it becomes easier. It just becomes normal. We just start dealing with the fear. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest evangelists there ever was, and uh, the greatest missionary you could say, changed more of the world than anybody else for Jesus. He struggled with the fear of evangelism. 
And I love that. I love the fact that there is detail like that in the word. You know, it really got hold of him when he was in Corinth. So much that in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3 it said, I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. This is the Apostle Paul. In weakness, in great fear and in trembling. Let's read about what happened in Corinth. Turn with me to Acts in chapter 18. Okay, Acts chapter 18 and starting from verse 1. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a dude named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest against them. Your blood be on your own heads, he said. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. When Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, the worshipper of God, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire family believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. All sounds pretty triumphant to this point, right? And then verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the (laughs) word of God. So in verses 1 to 8, you've got this powerful story of Paul coming to Corinth, hooking up with Priscilla and Aquila, and every Sunday, or Saturday as the case was, he was going into the synagogue, and he was reasoning with Jews and Greeks, anyone that would listen to him, that Jesus was the Christ, he was the one, that through him, people could get saved and set free and reconnected with God. So he was there preaching his heart out. And then when Timothy and Silas join him, he can then exclusively exclusively devote himself to speaking as much as he can, wherever he can, because they can take care of some of the financial needs. So he, he then hits opposition, and you see this confident, strong Paul, it seems, saying, right, well, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet. If you're not going to receive the gospel, I'm going to the Gentiles. So he moves to the... the the hall, which is next to the church, I bet they love that, him planting a church next to their church. Um, <laughs> and he starts preaching Christ there. And it says that many, many people believed and were baptised. It's like, get on, Paul is just on fire. But actually what we, what we know, because of the detail, is that Paul is doing all of that trembling. And he's doing all of that with real fear. And to the point where Jesus had to say, to say to him, don't be afraid any longer. The NASB actually translates this verse, don't be afraid any longer. Because it's there in the Greek, there's a sense that, that he's trying to call him out of fear. Because he's been struggling with it so much. 
Don't be afraid any longer. Jesus needed to have a word with him because Paul was struggling with intimidation and he was starting to pull back the message. He was starting to shut up. And Jesus had to encourage his heart with the words, keep on speaking and don't whatever you do be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack or harm you, which clearly was his fear because I have many people in this city. I want to pull some things out of these verses for us this morning. Jesus says, do not be afraid any longer. The root word for afraid is phobia. That's where we get the word phobia from. Now, it's quite interesting. I counted how many times the word phobia is used in the New Testament. Fear, being afraid. 29 times in the New Testament, this word, to, to be afraid, comes. Phobia. You know what that tells me? It's a normal part of Christian, Christianity and discipleship to be afraid. Uh, this discipleship business is designed to scare the hell out of you. It just is. That's normal. It's not supposed to be fear-free. It's par for the course, and we need to accept it. And so we, need, we need to allow our discipleship journey to go through scary times. It's necessary. You ask any of the disciples of Jesus. And it's often irrational. This fear that we have is often irrational. That's what a phobia is, right? A nebulous sense of dread that something will go wrong that grips us and paralyzes us, shuts us down. Think of arachnophobia. I'm not scared of spiders. Some people are. Are you scared of spiders? There are people that when they see a small spider in this country that can't hurt you, they're gripped with fear. They can't move until somebody deals with that spider. And it's very, very real for that person. I used to love that as a kid. I used to, in the playground, get spiders and put them in my mouth so there's just a few legs out. <laughs> just to scare the girls. Because <laughs> I'm not scared of spiders. It's probably unkind, I imagine. No? But some people are terrified. Uh, think of claustrophobia. You know, some people could suddenly feel incredibly panicky in small spaces. They, they'll avoid lifts and things like that. Because when they're in small spaces, there's just a fear that grips them, that paralyzes them, and they just feel terrified. And yet you get other people that, you know, cave divers, that can go hundreds of meters under the ground in, through tiny holes with just a limited air supply, and they don't care. You know, we're so different. But phobias are often irrational. That room isn't going to actually get any smaller. You're okay, you will get out of the lift. That spider is not going to eat you alive. It's not even poisonous. It's just a bit scampery. We know this, our minds tell us this, but yet something within us still grips us. That's a phobia. Jesus is saying to Paul, I want to release you from evangophobia. <laughs> Just created a word there, I'm quite impressed with myself. <laughs> I want to release you from evangophobia that is creeping into your heart. It's beginning to paralyze you, it's beginning to shut you down. It was the thought of being attacked for his message that was paralyzing him wasn't actually happening yet that much. So Jesus says in verse 10, no one is going to attack you. Throw off that fear. It's not real. But you know another funny thing? Read verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus tells him he's not going to get attacked, and then he gets attacked. which I think is quite funny. The very thing that Paul actually feared happened. So, you know those fears that you have of people not liking you or thinking you're nuts for believing in Jesus? Mm. That might actually happen. 
it's, it is a possibility. But right now it hasn't happened. You just have a phobia that it might happen. That might not be the reality at all. People might be very, very receptive. But we can all imagine. And the fear of it is actually worse than reality of it. Yeah. You know? But this is what I want you to see. Let's read verses 13 and 14. Okay, this man they charged is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And then verse 14, just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some kind of misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. And he goes on to expel them from the court. But look at that verse 14, just as Paul was about to speak. You know, Paul was terrified of this. But when the reality actually happened, it was nowhere near as bad as the fear of it. It was the thought that had the power to shut him up. It actually nearly gave him an even better platform to preach the gospel. And when the moment came, he had a sudden surge of confidence and was about to address the whole mob and the court and tell them all about Jesus. The reality wasn't actually that bad. The thought of it was the thing that was crippling him. Jesus kept his word and they didn't harm him in the end. I want to show you one more thing from these verses. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. What does that mean? When I first read it, I thought it was linked to the no one's going to attack you or harm you thing. Almost as though Jesus was saying, they're not going to mess with you because there's more of us than there is with them. I've got many people in this city. I've got your back. You know, you show me a mob, I'll show them a mob. But thankfully it wasn't Jesus, you know, giving gang speech at all. It doesn't actually relate to the, you know, they're not going to attack you part. It relates back to, please don't keep, keep silent. Please keep speaking. Because I have many people in this city you see, God knows there are scores of people in Paul's city that are hungry and are desperate and are searching for, Je for Jesus. And at the slightest opportunity to receive Christ and to understand who they are in his eyes and what redemption really means and what life in God really means, they're going to jump in with both feet. And they're right on the very edge of the kingdom. And God has chosen Paul to be the instrument through which he's going to save them. And he doesn't want to look for a plan B. And if Paul allows his phobias to take control and to paralyze him from his message, they will miss out. And I find that terrifying. So God can see what we can't see. In his crazy up-down way, he's chosen this trembling Paul to do the saving work. He wants to use Paul in his fear and weakness. And I believe this year that Jesus would say the same to us. I believe he's saying to each one of us, you may feel inadequate. You may be intimidated. You may be terrified at the prospect of sharing your faith with a stranger on a whim. But know this, I believe God says, I have many people earmarked and ripe for the kingdom in this town. Amen. But please, whatever you do, don't shrink back and be silent. Just as I promised to be with Paul, I will be with each of you, Tottenham United Free Church.
I promise you'll be okay. No one will actually harm you. Just keep speaking and keep drawing people to me. Will you do that for him this year? That's what I believe God's charges to us this year is to just keep speaking. Don't let our fear and our phobia get the better of us. So let's see our verse or our verses for this year. It's two verses. I hope you can cope with two verses. You can just remember the first bit and that, that'll do. But the second bit, oh, that's big. <laughs> do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. See, God sees what we don't see. God sees the amount of hearts that are out there that are hungry and thirsty for Jesus. We may get a sense that everybody is disinterested, but God knows different. God knows that there are many, many people that want the exact message that you have in your hands. And God chooses us to speak and to act for him, just like he did with Paul. He doesn't want a superhero. He doesn't want a seasoned, employed evangelist. He wants to use you. And he doesn't need you to have a great sales pitch. He doesn't need you to be the one that has all the words. I guarantee you won't have all the words. And when they fire questions at you, you won't have the answers. And that's completely okay. I guarantee you that he will surprise you in the things that he uses in your life that will actually communicate something of his grace. You'll be there working hard trying to share Jesus with them and there'll be something else that you accidentally did that people will notice because that just seems to be how he works. Mm -hmm. Something that you dropped into the conversation that strikes a chord in their heart and you were just making small talk. He wants to use us to speak and to act for him. Now I want to give us an opportunity to respond to this. So I want to go into a bit of a ministry time now. So if... uh, I want to invite the band to come up in case band people want to respond as well. But firstly, if you haven't led anyone to the Lord in a long time, and you would love this year to be a year where you had the privilege to do that, would you stand? Because I want to pray for you. Also, there's another group of people. If the thought of sharing your faith with people you know or work with terrifies you and you'd like to be freed up and to speak with peace and confidence as best you can, would you stand also? And I believe we should start there, just those two things. I was going to ask you to come down to the front, but there's not enough room. (laughs) So maybe we could just pray where we are. And if you're part of the prayer team, just mill about uh, when we prayed. Well, I'll pray first so we can all receive some prayer. But if you're part of the prayer team, just mill about amongst the people standing and just, just pray for people. Just bless them. Just ask for a fresh release of the Holy Spirit. Because we can't do this on our own. It is all his work. He may choose to use us as we are in our trembling state, but it is all his work. So Jesus, would you... Would you come?
Come now, Lord. Would you come by the power of your Holy Spirit right now and just touch our hearts and our minds. Come and move amongst us. Lord, I want to pray for release from fear for these ones, Lord. Lord, would you break fear off in Jesus' name. We ask for boldness, Lord. Boldness, Lord. I want to ask for fearless thinking and fearless speaking. A boldness of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) I pray that it would start deep within us. Lord, in our hearts, would you do something? Move the deep phobias, Lord God, so that when we come to the moment, we find ourselves freer. Lord, would you give us a shift of perspective? Like Paul, I pray that these ones, everyone standing now, would have a revelation that you will personally be with us and that you will bless their efforts. You'll bless their efforts, whatever they look like, whatever the efforts, however the efforts come out, Lord, I pray that you would bless the efforts because you're at their right hand. And I pray that you give deep encouragement and an instinct that the harvest is always riper than we think around us. That you already have many, many people in this town that are wide open to receive Jesus given the opportunity. Give us your perspective. You say, Jesus, open your eyes. The harvest is not tomorrow. It's not way down the road. Open your eyes. It's white for now. Lord, give us your eyes to see. Lord, bless them, Lord. Bless them. I want to ask for power. I want to ask for signs and wonders, just as we do our feeble stretching out of our hands and our feeble opening of our mouths to say something. I want to ask for your miracle-working power to be translated through us. It said when Paul was in Corinth, trembling away, he said, I didn't rely on persuasive words, but on a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. And you choose the trembling ones to to move your power through. And so a lot of ask that we would see an increase of signs and wonders out in the workplaces and out in in the streets and in our families. Lord, our desire is not to build a bigger church. Our desire is to transform this community for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you just do more out there, out and about, wherever we are. And you would be drawing people into relationship with you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 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 Now I'm going to invite the band to come up. And we're going to just spend some time worshipping. And just allowing the Lord to continue to speak to us. And if you're on the prayer team, why don't we just mill about a little bit. And just just continue to ask for a release of of conviction and blessing. and, And strength in our witness. And let's worship the Lord together.